0: Well, good morning, Tri-City. Good to meet you. Good to to see some familiar faces. Some of you I know from different churches around the Lower Mainland and from Westside, of course. It's an honor to be here. As Matt said, my name is Josh. I've been uh, on staff at Westside for a little over three years and so worked with Matt for a while there. I love the Glezos family. Um, Great, great honor to be here this morning. You guys are blessed with a great pastor. He's a a good preacher, funny to boot, which... uh, is always good. I loved. I listened back so I could come up to speed with where you guys are in the series. Listen to um, your Luke sermon last week, fantastic, talking if you weren't here about John the Baptist coming and proclaiming prepare the way for, for the coming of the Lord. Prepare the way. And I loved there was one quote in Matt's sermon that I thought was just gold. He said, Repentance is the steam shovel that levels the valleys of our heart. And I, I don't know if you guys still use steam shovels out here in the city. I mean we have electricity and gas engines now, but I think the quote was great. Nonetheless, Is um, John the Baptist came calling people, repent, repent. There's some heart work. It's not a road through the wilderness. It's a road in our heart that he came to prepare. Um, I'm, I, love, I love Luke's gospel. I'm looking forward to picking it up this morning in verse 15. Um, the question I really want to address is why is Luke taking a whole chapter in a letter to the Gentiles to talk about the baptism of Jesus? Why is he dedicating a whole chapter to baptism? And I I think it's because we're going to see something in here this morning. We're going to see something in John's baptism and Jesus' participation in it that offers us hope. It's it's juicy. There's only seven verses, but they're good. I'm eager to get going, so please open your Bibles. Luke 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. While you open your Bibles or turn on your devices, let me pray as well. Father... Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who communicates. You're not far off and distant. You've spoken. You've recorded and preserved your words for us. And we we, we believe the words of scriptures that say that we can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So Holy Spirit, I pray for your empowerment this morning to to just ignite the scripture. Use me as a very broken vessel. And I prayed that you'd use this kindling, these notes that I've prepared to, to ignite into flame and catalyze the words of Christ in all of our hearts. And I pray this by the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. So Luke 3, verse 15, it says, And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked John up in prison. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now our text opens with this this phrase, the people were in expectation. And this word expectation in the Greek, it's really just communicating the idea that people are watching, they're waiting, they're searching The dictionary definition of of expectation is a strong belief that something will happen. The reason why people were in expectation is threefold, I think. One, it'd been 400 plus years since the last of the prophets appeared in the Old Testament. So since then, this 400 year intertestimonial gap, complete silence, nada, it's quiet, And then the Old Testament, in fact, it closes the book of Malachi with with this. Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah, a symbol of the prophets. Kind of a um, a picture of the whole prophetic, um, uh, kind of the face of the prophets, one could say. He, He will restore the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Second reason they're in expectation. Since Malachi's written this, the nation's been taken over by the Greeks and then the Egyptians and then the Syrians and there's sort of a back and forth between um, um, Israel and the Assyrians and then eventually they just got taken over by the Romans and the point is they're probably thinking, where's this promised kingdom? When's it gonna come? Did you make us a people for this? to just be taken over and over again. They're an expectation. Thirdly, um, the Old Testament prophecies about all the events that would precede the coming of the Messiah, they'd happened. They'd happened. So if you're into Old Testament Bible prophecy at all, the scepter, it, it had departed from Judah. In fact, there wasn't any king in the nation but Caesar to get really super nerdy with you uh, Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks had been fulfilled. I'll, I'll leave, I left my eschatological scroll at home. Don't, don't worry. But the point is, is they're looking and going, where's this Messiah? Where's the Messiah? You said he was coming. We need delivering. They're in expectation. They're hungry. They're watching. They're waiting. They're searching. They had a strong belief something was going to happen. And then John pops on the scene. John out in the wilderness, um, he looks just like a prophet, and they must be thinking, this is it, finally, the Messiah is here. And in fact, we do know that they thought John was it, because several points in the New Testament, we see different people and, and priests and the religious elite showing up and asking John, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Verse 15 says, they were questioning in their hearts concerning John. They were so desperately expectant that they began to look to John, the one who was heralding the coming of the king, saying, Prepare the way. They were mistaking him for the one who the way was being prepared for. One commentator I read, he said this He said, When men's expectation is raised, that which they are in expectation of becomes doubly acceptable. Let me say that again. When men's expectations are raised, that which they are in expectation of becomes doubly acceptable. It's easy to read these stories in the Bible and from our high and lofty third-person perspective look at them and go, what fools? How how are you guys doing this? But we're hungry just like they were. We're, if we're honest, we're we're, if we're really willing to get truthful here, we're, we're a lot more like them than we might care to admit. We're desperate to find that thing that would fill that hunger, that, that meaning, that purpose, that hope, that thing that we're looking for that will deliver us from the cycles of just wanting and then wanting again. I mean, just ask us to open our time. Tri-City, what are you hungry for? What are you hungering for? What are you in expectation of? And then secondly, let me ask you, what are you settling for? What are you settling for? Because just like them, we regularly turn to lesser saviors. We settle for watches and cars and new shirts and vacations and positions and realized potential, whatever. The list is long. We're really not that different from them. St. Augustine, or Augustine, he said, um, the heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless till it rests in God. So let me just ask, what are we settling for apart from God? John responds to the people, and he lets them know, hey, I'm not who you think I am. But more often than not, the things that we turn to, they're not going to do us the same courtesy. They're not going to let us know that they're false saviors. John, by the way, he would have made an absolutely terrible Messiah. <laughs> he would have made a terrible Messiah. They, they needed the real one. As we read on, we're going to see that uh, while John came baptizing and calling people to repent and to prepare their hearts, it's Jesus who would be the one who would ultimately prepare people's hearts for the coming kingdom. The baptism John came with, it couldn't actually do that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me just read again. Verse 15 says, and the people were in expectation, and they were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. In verse 16, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's saying, you think I'm great? There's one who's coming whose sandal I'm not even fit to untie, and In this, in this day and age, untying somebody's sandal, it was, uh, it was uh, about the lowliest task one could do. Uh, it was a cultural thing. It was, there was some stigma around it. I, I've spent some time in Southeast Asia and so I've learned this lesson because this is still a thing there. Um, I found out you don't take your shoe off and like cross your leg and point your toe at anyone. That's like a death wish. Much less fall asleep on a bus and put your bare feet on the driver's head. That apparently is a big um, (laughs) no-no. Won't make that mistake again. Add to that the fact that there's feces and dust on the road and people are walking around in beta version Birkenstocks, and you can understand why you wouldn't want to wash somebody's feet or touch somebody's shoes. They're filthy. In, In fact, slaves at this time, they had the right to refuse to undo somebody's shoes, which I don't know how that goes over in like a job interview for slavery, like, hey, by the way, Jedediah, don't do shoes. Um, But that's the thing, I read it. So in essence, John is saying, the promised one's going to be so much better and do so much more that who I am and what I'm doing, it's going to pale in comparison. He's like, "I'm I'm not even fit to undo this guy's sandal. One mightier than I is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now John's, John's been, of course, we know, out in the wilderness baptizing people, literally immersing people in the water. And now he's saying, one's going to come who's going to baptize them or immerse them in fire. And I think, understandably, people are probably frightened at this point. Um, I think it's hard to get people to get water baptized. Imagine fire. They're probably certifiably afraid, or at best, a little confused. Perhaps we are too. Let's take some time and maybe take a look at what John's talking about. How is Jesus going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? Um, before I can go on and answer that question, I want to I give us a little bit of a framework for how we'll move through the rest of our time together this morning. Um, I want to take a look at three things. I think they're up on the screen for you. you know, why, why Jesus had to participate in John's baptism. Secondly, what John's baptism reveals about Jesus and then we're going to circle back to this question about Jesus baptizing with fire, and we're going to show how Jesus' baptism offers us more hope than John. So if you're a note-taker, this is going to be the format. Um, I'll move kind of in and out of it, though. I'm, I'm a little loose on my notes. But, um, so appreciate your grace on the front end. So um, in, in verse 3 of your text last week, it calls John's baptism a, a baptism of repentance, So let me just ask on the front, this is question number one here, why would the perfect lamb of God, the sinless one, have to participate in John's baptism? And John seems to be asking the same question. If you take a a, a detour to the left in your Bible, Matthew 3, verse 13, it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John would have prevented him. He said, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we've just heard John say he's not fit to even untie Jesus' sandal. And now Jesus is coming to him to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? Why is Jesus getting baptized by John? Well, when we think, baptism, we probably think baptism as it's practiced today. But what we need to know is that baptism has been going on at this time in the nation of Israel for probably around 1,500 years. There was a practice of baptism called proselyte baptism. Proselyte, it's where we get the word proselytize. If you know that word, it's when you go out and try to make a convert of someone. So it's, it's, it's not a surprise when we find out proselyte baptism would be when somebody converted to Judaism, they were baptized. So it was, in essence, somebody coming and, um, and, I mean, there's kind of, it's multiple here, but they would be coming and basically linking together with the narrative of the Jewish, Jewish people. And we've got a slide up on the screen. The Jewish people had a history of passing through water. They passed through the Red Sea. Joshua led them through the Jordan. The ark went before them. The water stood still, and they went through it. And so it was sort of saying, if you want to be part of this nation that's passed through water, you need to pass through water. But there was a second component to proselyte baptism, and that it spoke of a person's uncleanness and the necessity of them to be cleansed. So if somebody was to convert to Judaism, they would have to be circumcised, then they would have to go into the water and be washed. And in a sense, it was them saying, I'm dirty and I need to be cleaned. Or I'm leaving my sinful pattern of life on the other side of the river, and I'm passing through, and I'm never going back to it again. This was the first century context for baptism. But again, John is not preaching this baptism to foreigners. If this is how they would have understood it, as a baptism for foreigners, then you see the radicalness of it when John is calling the nation to baptism. And he's saying, it's not just foreigners that are unclean. It's not just those of pagan tradition that are unclean. It's everyone. It's everyone. John here... He's deconstructing national lines. He's agreeing with what Romans 3.23 says when it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And Christianity, this is the great part about Christianity, it's radically inclusive. It's in fact the most inclusive religion in the world. That it, it doesn't favor anyone. It says, everyone is jacked up. Everyone is a sinner and needs rescuing. This this is might sound like bad news, but it's, it's actually good news in the sense that it levels the playing field, but it also makes us desperate for a savior. So again, all that said, why does Jesus have to be baptized? If he is who he says he is, and if he is who the Bible says he is, why does Jesus have to be baptized? Well, I see three reasons. There's, there's several, um, just three I want to touch on. First, to identify with sinners. Second, to identify as their priest. And thirdly, to identify as their substitute. So there was no sin on Jesus that needed to be washed away. There was nothing in Jesus that needed to be repented of. Just as there was no reason for Jesus to take on human flesh and come and, and, and die in our place, the heart of what we're seeing here is that Jesus came to identify with people. He came down in order to get in the muck with us, to be able to rescue us from it. In baptism, what we're seeing is Jesus identify with sinful humanity. But also, just as a priest would wash himself, before he began his priestly service, here we see Jesus washing himself at the very inauguration of his public ministry. And then also, we see Jesus, well, just as we see Jesus identifying himself as their priest, the one who would stand before the Father and intercede on their behalf, we see John saying, behold, and this is in John's gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, and and John, who was doubly descended from Levites, was fulfilling the priestly duty of washing the lamb before it went on to be sacrificed. Jesus needed to be baptized because of all that he came to do. Jesus needed to be baptized in John's baptism because what he came to do required it. But Jesus is doing more than just identifying with sinners. And he's doing more than just revealing himself to be their priest and and showing himself to be their suitable substitute. He's also identifying himself as their God and king. This is our second point. The question I ask is, what does John's baptism reveal about Jesus? I'll just blow it right out of the water on the front end. It reveals him as their, their God and their king. Allow me to explain. Now, people were coming, they were waiting in lines to be baptized, you'd wait your turn, the person in front of you would go into the water, get dunked, come back out, walk to the shore, you'd go down, you'd go into the water, you'd get dunked, you'd come out, you'd walk to the shore, and this line went on and on and on. Um, some, some think that the entire nation of Israel came and got baptized, so this is, this is a long procession. It's just much of the same kind of second verse, same as the first, until Jesus comes and he goes into the water, when he comes out, something radically different happens. Verse 21 and 22, it says that when Jesus had been baptized, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. So the sky opens, and God speaks. Something something different is happening in the baptism of Jesus, the reason that the voice of God speaks is because it couldn't not. That's a double negative, so let me let me say it different. God speaks because he had to. That's what I mean. Jesus could no more go into the waters of baptism without God declaring him to be well-pleasing and without sin than Jesus could be crucified and held by death. The grave couldn't keep him cuz he had no sin. And so similarly, when he goes into the waters of baptism, which is a, a, a reserved for sinners, God had to yell out, this one has no sin. He's different. It was through being baptized that Jesus was revealed to be who he truly was. The only one who didn't need washing. God incarnate, fully God Fully man. Now there's some false teachers present today who claim this is where Jesus was first adopted by the father. And so up until this point, he'd just been a really good dude and and God decided to adopt him and make him his son here. And that if you and I are really good, we can also be adopted and do the same things Jesus did. This is actually a really old heresy. It's coming back in vogue. This is why I say this. This is not where Jesus became God. God. This is where he was first revealed to be God to humanity. There's something here, that, if you're like me, you haven't likely noticed before, um, but that would have tingled the spidey senses of Luke's first century Greek audience. I was talking with a theologian friend this week, and he pointed this out to me, and it kind of blew my mind, so I want to share it with you guys. Um, So the Greco-Romans, this is the audience Luke is writing to, they were sort of weird with birds. They, they actually had people, kind of like we, somebody would read tea leaves or palms today, they had somebody who would read the flights of birds and then tell fortunes based off of them. But it gets weirder, they really liked it when their rulers, actually they required that their rulers be vindicated or validated by a bird omen. So to, when Tiberius, who's ruling at this time, he took the throne, an eagle an eagle flew down, it landed on the roof of Tiberius' house, and it sort of served as an omen, indicating, hey, Tiber- Tiberius is in fact the new ruler, and then because the eagle symbolizes power and, and war, it symbolized the sort of reign that Tiberius was going to have. But, so when, when they're seeing this, the Greek audience, as they're reading this story, the, the, the dove descending on Jesus, it would have served as a vindicator for his identity. But there would have been a challenge to this too, if we're honest, right? Because if I can be honest with you guys, doves are sort of lame. I mean, they're sort of the lamest of birds. I mean, there's, there's eagles, there's raptors, they've got talons, there's maybe even an osprey or a parrot. Pirates have parrots, they're cool. But no, it's a dove. It's a lame old dove. So while it will have, would have validated him, it also would have spoke of the sort of kingdom that he came to initiate. And it's actually quite fitting because Jesus didn't come for war and battle. He came to be killed, and quite ironically, maybe not at all, doves were things that would be sacrificed on the altar. Jesus is being shown here to both Jew and Gentile alike as God and king. The sacrifice who came to take away the sins of the world. So much in here. The word of God is so good. Jesus is the one who was going to come. Would have identified, since the Holy Spirit's resting on him, that Jesus is the one who John said was going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. So if you wanted to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you had to go to the man with the Holy Spirit. And that's Jesus. This is what we're seeing in the baptism. So back to that question, how does Jesus' baptism, how does Jesus' baptism with fire and the Holy Spirit offer us more hope than John's water baptisms? Well, many commentators, are divided on whether this fire being referred to in verse 16 is, uh, is in fact a positive thing or whether it's a negative thing. Here's what I mean. Is that the fire in verse 16? It says um, that Jesus will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, but then in verse 17 it says, His winnowing fork in his hand is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with inquenchable fire. So clearly, the fire spoken of in verse 17, kind of a negative thing. Is that what he's referring to in verse 16? Um, I'm gonna take the position that the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire in verse 16 is not the same thing being referred to in verse 17. And um, what I'm seeing here is two types of fire. One is fire that purifies. The second is fire that destroys. So two types of fire, verse 16, fire that purifies. Verse 17, fire that destroys. What I see is Luke presenting two types of baptism, Either you're immersed in the Holy Spirit that Jesus brings or you're immersed in the fires of God's judgment. For the reasoning, I'm not just making this up, The, the reason why I believe that verse 16 is speaking of a different fire than verse 17 is because of Malachi 3. So again, that's that last book, that last prophetic book before the 400 years of silence. Malachi 3, this is up on the screens for you. It says, Behold... I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts and it goes on to say he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Malachi saying, the coming Messiah is going to come and purify them. He's going to come and refine them with fire. So when I read verse 16, this is what I believe it's speaking of. So how does John's baptism offer more, or Jesus's, pardon me. How, let me just start from the beginning. How does Jesus's baptism offer more hope than John's? Well, Jesus's baptism doesn't just wash the outside It cleanses the inside. If our sinfulness was something we could take care of just through awareness and some white-knuckled effort, then John's baptism would have been sufficient. We could have just washed away the outer sin and went on and sinned no more. would have been fine and dandy. But our sinfulness isn't something that can be washed away by a dip in the river or even the most aggressive of loofah scrubbers. You could take 80 grit To the shower with you, and you're not gonna scrub away your sin, just your skin. You need Jesus. Our sinfulness isn't external, it's internal, it's inside. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, agrees with this. It says, The heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's our heart that's the heart of the problem. Matthew 23. Verse 25 to 28, Jesus approaching the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, Woe to you, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you... Also, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the heart. Our real issues inside. And this is precisely what the baptism of Jesus takes care of, that the baptism of John could not. Jesus' baptism was a fulfillment of another prophecy, another baptism that Jesus promised, or that um, God the Father promised back in Ezekiel. Ezekiel. 36, verse 25, 26, 27, it's up on the screen. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you of all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll take my spirit, I'll put it within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. What he's saying is, I'm not going to come and wash you. I'm going to come and do heart surgery on you. Washing won't take care of it, but a new heart will. The baptism Jesus offers, it's a complete rewiring of our hearts. It's a purifying fire that alters the very chemical makeup of who we are. Tri-City Church, Jesus needed to be baptized by John in order that righteousness might be fulfilled and and in order that who he was would be revealed, the bringer of the baptism that would give us hope, the baptism that would change our insides, not just wash the outsides. No amount of scrubbing, no amount of white-knuckled effort, no amount of concerted care can change our conditions. John came proclaiming repent because unless we see the desperation of our condition and the futility of our effort, we'll never come to Jesus. If we don't see our sinfulness, we'll never look for a savior. If we don't see the desperation of our condition, we'll never cry, save me. And if you never cry, save me, you can never call Jesus savior. This is how John was preparing the way. Now, some here this morning, we're about to wrap. You're very aware of your sinfulness. You're coming in from your week. Maybe you weren't even going to come this morning. Maybe you're fighting with your spouse on your way here. Maybe you're living under the shame of what you did last night. Maybe after the week you've had, you feel like, the biggest phony showing up here. Let me just say, if we were standing here on any of our own merits, you'd you'd be right to probably feel that way, but none of us here are on the merits of our good behavior. We're here on the merits of Christ, we're here on his laurels. Your salvation isn't based on your works, your salvation is based on Jesus' works. So if this morning you're feeling the conviction of sin, I would just say rejoice. Rejoice because the refining fire is at work in you. Rejoice because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. This is the baptism with the Spirit, the immersion in the Spirit. The Spirit won't leave you. He's going to keep working on you. The refiner's fire is going to be gradually turned up in the heart of every single believer until it burns away all the excess metallurgical engineering. My wife is a, a welding metallurgical engineer. They gradually turn up the heat of the metal till it burns off the weaker elements, and it leaves a stronger, purer metal. It's the same with the refining fire. They would adjust the temperature till everything but the gold or the silver would, and all the dross would burn off. This is what God's doing in our hearts. This is the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit: is that He won't leave us. He's going to immerse us in the Holy Spirit. So, if you're coming in this morning feeling the fire, I would say, don't play with it, heed it. I'd say, rejoice because the Spirit of God is in you. James 1:2:4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let endurance have its. Perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 10, I'm just going to skip through some chunks of it. It says, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children. He disciplines us for us good that we may share in his holiness. So the band's going to come forward. I think Matt's going to come up and lead us into response. I want to pray. Um, Thank you for having me. I just want us to see the goodness of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus came with something better. And if, if you've never participated in that before, say that the hope of salvation is available to everyone in this room. If you look for your saving to Jesus. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, I do thank you um, for sending your son, for coming, for, for being the perfect sacrificial lamb, being the priest as well, who would, who would come and mediate before the Father on our behalf, but also give his life that we could be ransomed and reconciled. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've put within us and the hope of the salvation that you alone can, can offer and the baptism that you alone can administer thank you that our righteousness this morning is not built off of any work of our own, but the work of Christ. And I pray as we join together in worship now that we would, our hearts would be lifted and our eyes refixed on uh, the hope of you. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.